bringing you the latest in tax credit news, this is Tax Credit Tuesday with your host, Michael Novogratik. The legislative challenges have been significant. We very much need legislation. we got to produce housing. We're still in a very volatile industry. It's a challenging atmosphere for almost anyone. We can't get all these mixed signals and messages. If he doesn't have a bipartisan bill, nothing's going to happen. Alternative energy is still very expensive. Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today's Tuesday, July 28, 2015. In our general news discussion today, I'll have details about the tax extenders package that was advanced by the Senate Finance Committee last week. I'll tell you which expired incentives made the cut and when we can expect the rest of Congress to take up the extenders bill. I'll also discuss a bill designed to help victims of natural disasters by expanding the federal low-income housing tax credit, new markets tax credits, and historic tax credits in designated disaster zones. Turning to our low-income housing tax credit segment, I'll share a report from the Government Accountability Office on why it thinks HUD and the IRS should team up to administer the low-income housing tax credit program. Then, I'll discuss some significant changes being proposed to California's Qualified Allocation Plan. I'll also talk about how listeners can learn more about the options available to low-income housing tax credit property owners when their 15-year compliance period ends. In New Markets Tax Credit news, I'll discuss an update issued by the CDFI Fund that will help New Market Tax Credit Program participants determine the eligibility of census tracts in U.S. island areas. Then, in our Restored Tax Credit section, I'll share what one report says about the economic impact of the Federal Historic Tax Credit in Wisconsin. And we'll close out with our Renewable Energy Tax Credit section, where I'll talk about a bill that would allow tribal governments to use the Federal Renewable Energy Investment Tax Credit. If you're ready, let's get started. In general news, the Senate Finance Committee last week advanced a two-year, that's 2015 and 2016, tax extenders bill. It passed by a vote of 23 to 3. The package now goes to the full Senate for consideration. The legislation includes extensions of 52 expired tax provisions, also referred to as tax extenders, costing roughly $95.2 billion. It includes an extension of the minimum 9% low housing tax credit applicable percentage, or the tax credit floor, for allocations made by the end of 2016. And, in addition to the minimum 9% credit percentage, eight senators authored one provision that was added and passed as part of the modified chairman's remark, which creates a minimum 4% applicable percentage for local housing tax credits used to finance property acquisitions allocated by the end of 2016. Now, I should note, this new 4% floor would not apply to properties entitled to the 4% credit by virtue of multifamily housing private activity bond allocations. So it's not taxes and bond finance projects. It's essentially allocated tax credit projects that would be eligible for the minimum 4% in acquisition costs. Now, the bill would also extend a new market tax credit for another two years, and it would adjust it for inflation, inflation from 2007 forward. That means an increase from $3.5 billion to $3.94 billion annually. That increase is thanks to the efforts of Senators Ben Cardin, Chuck Schumer, Sherrod Brown, Debbie Stabenow, and Bob Menendez. 
This would be the first authority increase for the new market tax credit since the temporary increase that was authorized by the American Reinvestment and Recovery Act of 2009. The package would extend a few renewable energy and energy efficiency incentives also, such as the Section 45 Renewable Energy Production Tax Credit for projects that begin construction by the end of 2016, essentially wind power production, the option to claim the Section 48 Investment Tax Credit in lieu of the Production Tax Credit, the 50% first-year bonus depreciation, which is generally available for property placement service by the end of 2016, the Section 45L New Energy Efficient Home Tax Credit, that's for qualifying homes or units acquired by the end of 2016, as well as the Section 179D, Energy Efficient Commercial and Multifamily Building Deduction through the end of 2016. Now, despite the best efforts of the solar industry, the bill does not, does not include a provision to change the eligibility of solar projects from place in service by the end of 2016 to commence construction by the end of 2016. The commence construction requirement is what does apply for wind production tax credits. Senators Dean Heller, Maria Catwell, Rob Portman, Michael Bennett, and Ron Wyden were the ones who championed the provision to try to include commence construction language for solar projects. Now, even though it wasn't included, I do expect the solar industry will continue to press the case for the policy parity with the WIN production tax credit as the bill advances through Congress. As regular listeners know, supporters of the extenders have been pushing Congress to act sooner rather than later so that there will be more certainty for industry stakeholders. Last year, you probably recall, the Senate didn't pass an extenders package until December 16th. The President signed it into law on December 19th, and the one-year retroactive extension bill then expired soon after on January 1st. This year, lawmakers are trying to get a head start. As I said, the Senate Finance Committee bill advances to the full Senate, but it's unclear when the full Senate will take it up for consideration. At one point, it appeared possible that the extenders bill would be added to the Highway Trust Fund bill under consideration by the full Senate. But that seems unlikely now. And the full Senate is expected to defer action on the Finance Committee approved extenders bill until after the August recess, possibly in September, but unfortunately, likely closer to the end of the calendar year. And in the House, Ways and Means Committee Chairman Paul Ryan has said he wants his committee to act on extenders in September. As I've mentioned previously, the House has already passed several bills to make a select set of extenders permanent, as opposed to the Senate's approach to extend almost all expiring provisions by two years. Chairman Ryan will likely press, or try to press, the case to make those extenders permanent when the House negotiates with the Senate. Given the differences in approach between the House and the Senate, it may be difficult for the House and Senate to resolve their differences quickly and send a final extenders bill to the President for consideration early in the fall. Legislators will have to keep their eye on the calendar, with the congressional recess kicking off soon. I should note that Senate is scheduled to be out from August 10th through September 7th, Labor Day, and the House is planning to go in recess even earlier, August 3rd through Labor Day. After the break, lawmakers will have to deal with a host of other big issues in addition to extenders. That, of course, includes trying to prevent another government shutdown by passing a stopgap funding bill by September 30th. As always, I'll keep you posted on any updates. Just follow me on Twitter. My handle is at Novogratik. And for more information on the Senate Finance Committee's extenders bill, check out my blog 
at novogradic.wordpress.com. Shifting gears now, companion legislation was introduced this month that would expand the federal low-income housing tax credit, new markets tax credit, and historic tax credit to help victims of natural disasters. The bill was introduced in the House of Representatives by Representative Tom Reed, a Republican from New York, and in the Senate by Senator David Vitter, a Louisiana Republican. The legislation would increase the amount of those credits available in federally declared disaster areas. Similar bills were introduced last year, but neither bill got out of the committee. The legislation would extend that relief to major disasters declared in the calendar years 2012 through 2015. Specifically, concerning the low-income housing tax credit, it would change the applicable limit for states to the greater $8 times the population of the qualified disaster area, or 50% of the state low-income housing tax credit ceiling. The legislation would make that provision permanent. The legislation would also increase the new markets tax credit allocation by $500 million a year for those specified areas. And the historic tax credit would see an increase in the credit percentage on qualified rehabilitation expenses in affected areas. For non-historic buildings placed in service before 1936, it would go from 10 to 13%. And for historic income-producing properties, it would go from 20 to 26%. The House bill was referred to the Committee on Ways and Means, and the Senate bill was sent to the Senate Finance Committee. The House bill had 16 co-sponsors at the time of this recording. 11 were Republicans and 5 were Democrats. The Senate legislation had 8 co-sponsors, 6 Democrats and 2 Republicans. The Natural Disaster Tax Relief Act of 2015 is Senate Bill Number 1795 and House Bill 3110. You can find the bills at www.taxcredithousing.com. In low-income housing tax credit news, a report by the Government Accountability Office, of the GAO, released last week called for joint administration of the LIHTC program. The report was prepared for the Chairman of the Senate Judiciary Committee, Charles Grassley, and it says Congress should consider designating the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development as a joint administrator with the IRS. As listeners know, the IRS has overseen the LIHTC program since the program was introduced in 1986. The report called the IRS oversight of the LIHTC program as, quote, minimal, end quote. It said that the IRS has conducted just seven audits of the 56 credit allocating housing agencies that administer and oversee the program. The report suggests that HUD's experience in affordable housing makes it the logical partner with the IRS to oversee the program. I should say the logical federal partner. It says HUD's role should include responsibilities such as regular monitoring of housing finance agencies. The Treasury Department suggested HUD could be responsible for analyzing the effectiveness of the LHTC. Treasury also said that the IRS should continue to enforce the tax law. GAO concluded that assigning LHTC oversight to HUD would require additional funding for the department, both in terms of people and systems. A significant point made by the report is that other tax credit programs already include joint oversight. For instance, the Federal Historic Tax Credit includes oversight by the IRS and the National Park Service. And the Federal New Markets Tax Credit is overseen by the IRS and the Treasury Department's Community Development Financial Institutions Fund. The report said that HUD's experience in administering affordable housing programs and working with housing finance agencies make it a good fit for the role. And it said that joint administration of the LHTC program 
would also allow the IRS to retain responsibilities consistent with its mission. Not everyone agrees with GAO's recommendation. That's a bit of an understatement. The National Council of State Housing Agencies, for instance, said that if Congress wants better oversight, it should increase funding for it to both Treasury and the IRS. It said HUD had, has virtually no experience with the LHCC program and that HUD's joint administration of the program would create more red tape. You can read the report at www.taxcredithousing.com. Hover over Resources and click on Reports and Research. It's called Low Income Tax Credit Joint IRS-HUD Administration Could Help Address Weaknesses in Oversight. You can also visit my blog at novogratic.wordpress.com. In other low housing tax credit news, I have a state-level update from California. The California Tax Allocation Committee, or TCAC, announced its fall 2015 proposed regulation changes for low housing tax credit qualified allocation plan. Here are some of the highlights. For the 4% credit, one proposed change was to increase the basis and help close funding gaps along with increasing the developer fee cap. On the 9% side, a proposed change is to grandfather for one year the difficult developed area or DDA status of any development that loses DDA status. That's important, of course, because DDA developments get a boost in their eligible basis. Other 9% proposed changes include requiring acquisition and or rehabilitation developments that apply for competitive tax credits to demonstrate they're not feasible as 4% developments, increasing the $2.5 million cap on the maximum annual federal credit award by $10,000 per unit for each unit over 100 up to a new maximum of $3 million, require applicants to provide committed services for 15 years instead of 10, and for 4% 9% tax credit developments, the proposed changes include requiring resyndication developments to keep existing affordability for another 55 years. In these cases, waivers would be allowed for developments with negative cash flow or specified losses of rental or operating subsidy. Another proposal is to require resyndication developments to use all funds and reserve accounts for rehabilitating the property and also to allow any number and location of sites for Section 8 scattered site acquisition and rehabilitation development and also to allow scattered site rehabilitation developments to meet development type requirements at each site independently. Now, as I mentioned, these are proposed changes, and they are quite numerous, so you should review the regulations yourself. There are also much more mildly controversial changes. These more controversial changes or proposed changes include generally requiring an appraisal to exclude the value of the property tax exemption that's unless a waiver is granted. For current owners of properties in California, the net result of this value limit is a reduction in the fair market value of tax credit properties on resale or on sale in year 15. There would also be new prospective rules that would limit the ability of owners to distribute sales or refinancing proceeds unless certain rehabilitation work identified in a capital needs assessment is completed within one year. And then there are also proposed changes to limit the cumulative distributions from refinancing and sales proceeds for projects in which at least 50% of the units are subject to a continuing state or federal project-based rental assistance contract. Now, TCAC will hold public hearings to discuss these changes, and they're coming up quickly. The scheduled hearings are in San Diego tomorrow, Wednesday, July 29th, Los Angeles the day after on July 30th, in Sacramento next week, next Monday, August 3rd, and then in Oakland, or in Oakland on August 5th.
Comments on the proposed changes are going to be accepted, though, until 5 p.m. on Monday, August 31st. Now, to read the proposed reg changes, go to www.treasure.ca.gov. And if you have questions or comments or additional insights on these proposed changes, please reach out to Mark Shelburne or Jim Kroger at Novogratic. In other news, Novogratic will host a webinar this week, coincidentally, on the different options available to low-income housing tax credit property owners when their 15-year compliance period comes to an end. The course will cover the option to buy out limited partnerships, interests in year 15, refinancing in year 15, early buyout of the limited partnership, qualified contracts, and resyndication. It's designed for developers, attorneys, syndicators, and anyone else interested in year 15 issues. The instructors will be my partner, Nicola Panoli, from our Portland office, and Mark Sween, Vice President of Dominium. Registered attendees will also have a chance to earn Continuing Professional Education, or CPE, credit. The webinar will be held this Friday, July 31st, from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern Time, and registration will close Thursday at 5 p.m. Eastern. To sign up, go to www.novaco.com webinars. In new markets tax credit news, the Community Development Finance Institutions Fund, or CDFI Fund, earlier this month released new market tax credit program eligibility data for the island areas of the United States. So which areas are included? American Samoa, Guam, the Northern Mariana Islands, and the U.S. Virgin Islands. The new data is for 2010 census tracts in those areas. This allows users to determine eligibility in 2010 census tracts of the island areas by using the CDFI Fund's virtual mapping system. That data was previously unavailable for the island areas. The updated eligibility data is available on the CDFI Fund's virtual mapping system, which is also available on its website. Both the CDFI Fund's Census Transition FAQ document and the 2006-2010 American Community Survey eligibility data spreadsheet have been updated as well. You can see all the updates at www.cdfifund.gov. The eligibility information for the rest of the nation was released in February 2013. So the updates have no impact on new market tax credit eligibility data for the 50 states, Puerto Rico, or the District of Columbia. If you have any questions about the new market tax credit program, please contact my partner, Brad Elphick, in our Atlanta Metro office. I should note that the new market tax credit working group mapping tool is being updated for this new data as well, and that should be available uh, in the weeks ahead. We'll alert you when it is available in a future podcast. In historic tax credit news, a new report was recently released that highlights the benefits of the federal historic tax credit for the state of Wisconsin. It analyzed the program's effects on Wisconsin's communities from 2001 through 2014. It was put together by the National Trust for Historic Preservation and Milwaukee Preservation Alliance. The report demonstrates that the federal historic tax credit is instrumental in helping revitalize both smaller communities and the most populated areas across the state. Between 2001 and 2014, the report found that 154 projects were financed by the Federal Historic Tax Credit in Wisconsin. These projects received nearly $105 million in Federal Historic Tax Credits. The resulting activity generated more than $655 million in development expenditures. Furthermore, these projects created nearly 10,000 jobs including about 3,700 construction jobs and 6,300 permanent jobs. Regular listeners know 
that historic preservation incentives are extremely popular in Wisconsin. The state legislature and Governor Scott Walker recently approved a budget keeping the state historic tax credit intact and without a cap on the program's annual expenditures. That approval was a major victory for the historic preservation community. To read the report titled, Wisconsin, Creating Jobs, Building Communities, Preserving Heritage, go to www.historictaxcredits.com. In the Renewable Energy Tax Credit news, I have an exciting announcement for tribal communities across the country. Earlier this month, companion bills were introduced in the House and the Senate that would allow allocation of federal renewable energy investment tax credits to Indian tribes. Tribes would then be allowed to transfer or sell the credits to another taxpayer. The bills were introduced by Senator Martin Heinrich and Representative Raul Rihalva. The bills would allow tribes to monetize the tax credit by selling it to another entity, such that the full benefits of the credit would be available to the tribal owner of the project. Supporters say the bill would level the playing field for tribal communities. That's because they would finally have direct access to the same 30% credit as non-tribal businesses. Senator Heinrich said that giving tribes direct access to tax incentives is key to creating the kind of energy autonomy that Native American tribes deserve. Representative Grijalva agreed that unfair tax code disparities have kept Native American tribes at an economic disadvantage for too long. The bill sponsors said that the total technical potential on tribal lands for, ele- for electricity from utility-scale rural solar resources is about 14 billion megawatt-hours, or 5.1% of the country's total generation potential. And the Navajo Nation alone accounts for more than 15% of that total rural potential. The bills would apply to facilities placed in service on or after the date of enactment. The legislation is called the Tribal Tax Incentive for Renewable Energy Act of 2015. It's H.R. 3043 in the House and S. 1749 in the Senate. You'll find the text of the bills at www.energytaxcredits.com. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. I invite you to join me again next week for another Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. Thanks for listening. This weekly podcast has been brought to you by Novogratik and Company, LLP. Archived discussions are available online at www.novaco.com forward slash podcast or by subscribing to the Tax Credit Tuesday podcast in iTunes. Novogratik and Company, LLP is a national certified public accounting and consulting firm with offices nationwide. Learn more about our professional services at www.novaco.com.